may be seated. Good morning. Hope everybody's doing okay. I want to say thank you to uh, Pastor Jonathan as he leaves uh, for teaching for me. He did uh, chapter 9 of John, did a great job. We're in the 10th chapter this morning, the book, the gospel, the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. I love Galatians. I go back and forth between Galatians and the book of Romans, the epistles. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, and I agree with him, says, Galatians, the book of Galatians is the Magna Carta of the epistles. And the reason I tell you that, we're going to do John, but I'm going to start off in Galatians chapter 3. It pertains to what we're looking at this morning. Galatians 3, 24 tells us, therefore the law was our tutor, paidagogos, that's what the Greek word means, that was put in place by God to lead us, to bring us to Christ. The reason for that we may grow, we become mature spiritually, that we no longer need the parameters of the old religious systems. That's what the law was for. You see, we now, when Jesus Christ came, we can enter into a true, right relationship with the living God. Judaism, what it did, it it provided a system whereby God's people could be kept. Matter of fact, the law was also called a fence, and and it was a hedge. It was a hedge of protection. Matter of fact, it was to keep the Hebrews from crossing over to continue to try to follow Yahweh God, and it kept intruders from coming in. So Judaism really kept the people of God for a long time, and that was good and well, but a new era has arrived. A new covenant has come, the covenant of the Messiah, the old sheepfold is over now. The good shepherd has come, and all of that introduces chapter 10 of John this morning, which really is a continuation of the healed blind man that Pastor Jonathan has been speaking about. So it's not like it's a different day now. Matter of fact, it's the same day. Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem. After the day of the Feast of Tabernacles, he has healed the man born blind from birth, the first time this has ever happened. The blind man has been interrogated since he has can see now by the Jewish elite. And eventually we know he is cast out of the synagogue, which Jonathan has told us presents severe repercussions because the synagogue meant everything to a Jewish person, whether it was socially, whether it was spiritually, that was their entire life. And to be kicked out of that synagogue, it was terrifying. He is abandoned by them. He is abandoned by the same group of men who were supposed to shepherd this blind man, to have love 
this blind man to have was responsible to be able to lay down their lives for him. That didn't happen. And it says in chapter 9 that Jesus goes and finds this man. Salvation from beginning to end is a work of God. We do nothing. He does it all. Jesus goes and finds this man, the pearl with unlimited price, and he gives everything for this man, the same way he does for for every child of God. So he is cast out of the fold of Judaism, and the good shepherd, he finds him. So this man is being brought into Jesus's fold. He has heard his voice. And I pray that those that are watching online and those that are here have truly heard the Messiah's voice this morning and given their lives to him. I don't know a lot about shepherding, and I'm sure you guys don't either because you probably never shepherd sheep, but I've did a lot of writing or reading, and, and I've heard people speak to me about shepherding. And so we have to look at the way they shepherd 2,000 years ago in the Near East and especially in Israel. As we look at this passage this morning, we have to understand that there's two types of sheepfolds or sheep enclosures. There was one in the village and there was one in the countryside or the wilderness. And that's very important because some will say, those who studied these things, that verses 1 through 5 of chapter 10 is about the first kind of sheep pen. And verses 7 through 10 is about the second kind of enclosure. One, once again, is in the village, and the other one is in the countryside. In the village, not one but several shepherds, how it worked, would place their flocks, plural, into a communal sheep pen, And every night after they would graze, they would take their sheep and place them into this sheep pen. And then hopefully they would go home and have a good night's sleep. But there would be a porter there or a watchman there. And in the morning when they would get up, they would go back to the sheep pen. And at that time, there was no branding of animals. There was no uh, tags. You could place one, two, or three on on the sheep. But that shepherd, when the porter or the watchman would see him, he would allow him to go in. And of all of these different shepherds, David's sheep and even Emily's sheep and Tyler's sheep would be in the sheepfold. And then each one of the shepherds would begin to make a certain cadence or call and speak to their sheep. And those sheep would hear their voice and begin to lead them out. The shepherd would lead them out to greener pastures. They would stay out maybe one day, bring them back in. They may stay out two days and and let them graze and bring them back in. And so every one of the sheep knew their master's voice. And they would go out into the field. A quick sidebar on this. Uh, I read that 
it was in Austria, I think Australia, and they do a lot of sheep herding there. And so one guy took another sheep farmer to court because he said they had stolen, he had stolen some of his sheep. And so they really couldn't figure out the case between the plaintiff and the defendant. So finally, a wise judge said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Let's go outside and bring the sheep. And I want you to go about 100 yards. And the plaintiff, I want you to call the sheep first. And so he would make his distinctive tone and his distinctive cadence and his distinctive pitch and call the sheep. And none of the sheep would go. And then the defendant, he says, now you call them. And he began to call, and one by one, the sheep came to the defendants. So they found out they were his sheep. That's what Jesus is speaking of here. And and the sheep all the way through the Bible is a metaphor. That's who the believer in Jesus Christ are. We're sheep. And any time... You hear the word sheep. You really, you can take it one of two ways. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me lie down beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness. David, what David is doing, he's bragging on the shepherd. And David knows that he's a sheep. But you can take that one of two ways because you know about sheep. Sheep aren't too bright. That's why they need a shepherd. It's been told that sheep will follow the lead sheep off a cliff one by one, one after the other. So they're not too bright. So I understand when Scripture calls us a sheep. I'm not offended by that. I'm like David. I brag on that. I'm a sheep. But I brag on I have the greatest shepherd that's ever lived. I have a shepherd who cares for me, who loves me, who lays his life down for me. Yes, I need to be led. You need to be led, whether you know it or not. You need to be guided. I need to be guided. That's why Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. Matter of fact, Peter calls him the chief shepherd, the only shepherd. If we've been born again, we hear his voice. And we follow him. That's what Jesus is saying here. Well, I have to tell you one more thing before we get started. The synoptic gospels, Jesus often taught in parables. Parabole, para, come alongside. Uh, the paraclete, he, he, first he's beside us. And then when we're born again, he comes inside of us. And then bole is to cast. Casting natural pictures alongside a biblical truth. But if we think, because some commentators say this, go back and read it. Some commentator says this chapter here is a parable, but it's not a parable. You can take that to the bank. It's an analogy, and it's really a—I love Bill Bill O'Reilly because when he had his show on TV, he would always say a pithy statement. Well, this is what this parable, not a parable, it's an analogy. It's a meaningful, guiding, emotional analogy, 
speaking of something, speaking about what a true shepherd is and what a, what a false shepherd is. And then we get to see the contrast in this. Uh, I think the NIV or the ESV calls it an illustration, and that's very good too. Some say it's a figure of speech. That's okay also. But it's definitely not a parable. So rather than anything else, this is four analogies. We're not going to look at all of them this morning. And whenever you're dealing with these kind of analogies, people always want to know, what does the metaphor, what is it for the sheepfold? What does it mean? Some say the sheepfold is a picture of heaven or it's a picture of salvation. I don't see that in either one of these because in heaven, there won't be any smashing grabs going on. There won't be any thieves and robbers coming in and stealing something in heaven. So it can't be that. Also, it, it, it can't be a picture of salvation because as, as we read this, the shepherd leads the sheep into the sheepfold. So he's all, he already has sheep and then he leads them out. So when we get to the kingdom, there will never be a going out of that again. The way I see this and the way the context shapes this because it goes back to chapter 9 and it speaks of this blind man that is healed now, and it's tied in with that. So what Jesus is doing, he's giving an explanation why this blind man has been kicked out of the sheepfold. And really, it's a sheepfold of Judaism, but Jesus is bringing him now into the true sheepfold of this new covenant. He's heard Jesus' voice. All of the religious leaders, all of, and it was more people there. None of them at this time, the scripture tells us, heard what Jesus was saying. Only this one man, he heard his voice. God brought him in. Jesus brought him in to this sheepfold. The reason I know he's a child of God, because the scripture says he bowed down and worshiped him. So he's been brought into the sheepfold. So I think it better relates to the context of being kicked out of Judaism and in bringing into the new covenant here. So verse 1 says this, Most assuredly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. It's my opinion, but I think Jesus spoke these words at the sheep gate because he had been speaking, remember, all of this at Solomon's porch, that covered portico area that ran uh, on the eastern side of the Temple Mount, and it ran from south to north all the way down. Thank you, Jordan. I'm going to tell you what I did because I always tell on myself. I'm looking at the tabernacle, and, and, and I'm reading the scriptures, and I said, man, I, I should be able to find this sheep gate. And I'm looking at all this stuff, and it finally hit me. I went to Zechariah because I was thinking the sheep gate was a gate right at the temple. And as you can tell, it's not 
Because remember, all of the lame and the blind would be at the pool there, at the colonnades. So Jesus goes out, and he's speaking to the religious leaders and the crowd about this. He exits the temple by one of the gates, because remember, he's already on the eastern side, and he goes out to the northeastern gate, known as the Sheep Gate. It's also called the Lion's Gate. I think it might even be called St. Stephen's Gate. So Jesus, using what he had, the illustrations, he begins to teach to the hearers. And thinking about the man who has just been excommunicated from the sheep pen of Judaism and answering the attack of the religious leaders, he gives them an explanation, and he uses this analogy here. I mentioned to you in the village the sheep pen. All of the sheep was placed together. So you had different flocks in one pen. Once again, there was no branding. There was no numbers. So you had to call your sheep out. That's what he did here. He gets here. He begins to do this. He speaks to him once again. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He says, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door. That's the only way you can get in truly. Once again, now in the morning when the sheep shepherds would come to the door, the doorkeeper or the porter says, I know you. You're the right sheep. Call your sheep. And the sheep would go with them. He says, but those that climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. He's a false shepherd. And a false shepherd, he will try to climb in at night and try to steal the sheep. Jesus, Jesus Christ, he came right through the front door, the right way, the front door of Judaism. He came the right way. There's over 330 predictions from the prophets of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, coming on the earth. Matter of fact, Galatians 4.4 tells us, but when the fullness of time had come, the Roman roads, everything was straight. They had street lights. They had every, everything they needed. So when the gospel was proclaimed, they could take it to the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus came the right way. Verse 4 tells us, and when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. In the United States, sheep herders, they drive their sheep, but eastern shepherds would lead their sheep. It's more intimate. That's what Jesus is saying here. He has an intimate relationship with his sheep. In the Near East, a shepherd would walk in front of their flock. Because sheep don't know, once again, where they're going. And so when the sheep knows the master's voice, when he spent time with them, those sheep will follow, follow him effortlessly. The sheep is at ease when the shepherd is around because they know that he knows where he's going. David said, he makes me lie down in green pastures. When I'm rushing, when I'm hustling and bustling and the world has gotten too heavy for me, it's my shepherd who says, you need to rest. So he says in verse 5, yet 
They will by no means follow a stranger. I want you to know before I say this, I'm sympathetic. But I've lived long enough. I've, I remember when that situation in Guyana went down with Jim Jones. I remember David Koresh, the Branch Davidian, when all of those things went down. Bog one, and I remember watching, if you guys, some of you can remember this, the Phil Donahue show, when they had uh, Sung Young Moon, and it just, it just grabbed my attention. I would sit there as a little boy, watch Phil Donahue talk to this, the, this guy and all of his followers in California, and he would interview them, and they would say, he's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. That's why we give him all of our money. That's why we do anything he tells us to do. And I was blown away of the deception and to drink that Kool-Aid in Guyana, Guyana and kill all those people. It boils down to they were not Jesus' sheep because they were following a different shepherd. It's sad. But Jesus states it here, yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand because he's speaking spiritual things here. The natural man cannot discern the things of the spirit, but they did not understand these things which he spoke to them. We are about to go into this second sheep enclosure now. And there's an underlying truth in all of this I want you to understand. And that is the sheep once again needs a shepherd. The sheep needs to be guided. The sheep we need to be dependent on our shepherd. Sheep who have no shepherd are either lost or dead. That's just the way it is because they're dumb sheep. And a matter of fact, the scripture classifies sheep as lost or dead. Uh, Paul says, all of us at one time was dead in trespasses and sin, wandering, meandering, not knowing where we were going. And it's all because we were following the wrong shepherd. If you're being prodded this morning, if you're being pushed this morning, if you, if you find you have no rest this morning and you're striving after something or someone else, then you have the wrong shepherd. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is is light, and he's the right shepherd to be following. Mark says it this way. When Jesus crosses to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he looks out in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 34, and he says, And Jesus, when he had came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion, bowels of compassion. He bowed down. It hurt him in his innermost being for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. 
They are sheep without having a shepherd. Should I just go give them something? This is what you do. It says, so he began to teach them many things. We should feed on his word. We should meditate on his word. That's what strengthens us. That's what enables us to grow in the Lord and become mature, to listen to his word, to read on his word, to grow in his word. That's what Jesus did. The funny thing about sheep, I also learned, they are predatory animals. Other animals prey on them. They say when sheep, when a wolf or a wild dog or anything is trying to catch sheep, they do one or two things. Of course, they flee. But another thing, they like to huddle up, and they huddle up with their heads facing one another, and it leaves their backside open. Now, that's a funny picture there. And it's like the wolf, they're saying to the wolf, okay, have your pick, whichever one you want. Doesn't that tell you they need a shepherd? When the world, my, my, to, to, to give you a better picture of that, when the world is going crazy, And we don't know what to do. We try several things before we do what we should do. Cry out to the Lord. Be still and know that he is God. And he will come and take care of us because we are his sheep, the sheep of his pastor. It's his job to take care of us. That's what Jesus is speaking of. He says in verse 7, Then Jesus said to them again, once again, this is the second time he's speaking, and he's using a little different analogy here. The morning is over. The shepherd is leading his flock out to green pastures, and he says, most assuredly, verily, verily, amen, amen. You can take this to the bank. I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So you can see the, it's, he's getting more intimate with us now. First, he said, hey, I'm the, I'm the good shepherd, but the porter or the watchman, he's watching But now he says, no, I am the door. And once again, in the village, you had a porter there. You had a watchman there. But out in the field, when he would take the, the shepherd would take the sheep out for days, he would either get, find a cave or he would put rocks up two or three feet high. And then the shepherd would lie down at the opening of that little encircular pen saying, no one, no sheep is going out and no sheep is coming in. If a wolf comes, he's going to have to defeat me first in order to get my sheep. Remember when David, Obed sends David to take his brother some cheese and some of the other men some cheese. They're getting ready to fight the Philistines' army, or really, they were going back and forth acting like they wanted to fight because Goliath had them all afraid. But so uh, David shows up, and he says, what's going on? Uh, nobody will fight Goliath. And so David says, I'll take care of this uncircumcised Philistine. So they heard this, and so they call. Saul calls for David. So at the interview, Saul is talking to David, and David says, yes, I said it. Yes, I'm a shepherd, and I have a sling, and I have a stone, and I use them pretty well. I could hear him speaking, telling him that. And you know what? 
I've killed the bear and I've killed the lion when they had the sheep in the lion had the sheep in his mouth. David says, I took him by the beard and rescued the sheep. David said that about some measly little sheep. Think about the greater than David, what he will do to keep his sheep. What he's already did, he's laid down his life and took it again for us. That's what he's saying. He says in verse 8, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. He's speaking right now of the religious leaders. They're listening to him who's presently in, in rulership in Israel here. Jesus is flat out calling them thieves and robbers to their face. He's speaking of Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 and, and Zechariah, I think chapter 17, when they speak of worthless shepherds that's taking advantage of the sheep spiritually and physically. Jesus says, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them because his sheep belonged to him. We've heard the the expression before, over my dead body. Well, that's what the shepherds would do when they would lie down. They would say, no one is going to get my sheep. That's what Jesus is saying here. The key to staying close to the shepherd, Jesus says, I, Jesus tells us to abide in me. So it comes down to proximity. If I, the closer I am to Jesus, the more secure I will feel, the more safety there is, and this part I like, the more joy I will have. I don't know about you guys. I like joy. And one thing I found out about having joy, because Philippians tells me, no matter what my circumstance is, if I'm in a close relationship with Jesus Christ, if I'm in lockstep with him, if I'm allowing him to lead me, no matter what's going on, I can have joy because I'm abiding in him. When my dad lost his life, when when he, he died, my whole family, we had a sense of joy because we knew where he was at. Yeah, we were sad because we're going to miss him, but we had joy, and I've never felt that way before. So no matter what happens, if you're in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, there's a sense of joy. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pastors. Once again, abides means to have a constant, that's the key word, a constant, close, living communion with Jesus. Not every once in a while I'll pick up my word. Not once a month when things might get a little shaky, I'll pick up my word. You can't have joy like that. You might can have a, notice I said you might, you might can have a relationship, a long distance relationship, but to have the joy the apostle Paul speaks of and what Jesus is speaking of here, 
You have to have a constant, close, continuous relationship with Jesus Christ. Then no matter hell or high water, you're going to be okay. That's what is, is called for every sheep. Every sheep. There's safety there. The closer we are in proximity to the Lord, to the shepherd, the more joy we will have. He says in verse 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And then the Savior says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So there we see a contrast. The good shepherd wants you to have security. He wants you to have safety. He wants you to have abundance, but not the thief. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. As I was thinking about this part of the sermon, I thought about Job. And Satan never has a good day. He had taken Job's flocks and cattle, and that still wasn't enough. He took his family, and that still, besides his wife, so that tells you something, it still wasn't enough. Satan never has a good day until he has us where he's going. And we don't want to go there. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And those are the two plans that we have here, the two choices that we have. We, and it seems to me like it's an easy choice. Do I choose life with Jesus Christ or do I choose death with Satan? But I have to give the enemy credit because he's a great marketer. He can package sin, hell, and destruction so brilliantly, and he allures us with so many things that he makes the decision tough for the sheep. But there should not be a tough decision because we know the end of what's going to happen here. Proverbs 14, 12 tells us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in the way of death. Jesus says he's come to give us life and he's come to give that to us more abundantly. We here in the West, especially the false prophets of the, the, the faith movement, interpret abundance to means prosperity, an abundance of money, of possessions, of creature comforts, having a lot of money in your wallet, a big paying job, the nicest home, and the sleekest car. That's how we usually think of abundance. But I don't see any indication of that in the Scripture. When Jesus called his 12 disciples and many more, he didn't have a retirement plan. He didn't have to give them shekels, a, a pocket full of shekels. He didn't give them any kind of assurance that everything was going to be okay in this life. Jesus says, for anyone who wants to come and follow me must pick up his cross, deny himself, and follow me daily. So he's not saying that money per se is an issue because that's neutral. But what he's saying, don't let all of these things get in the way of following me. 
We tend to do that in the West. We tend to do that. The more we tend to have in the West, the more we seem to less think about our Savior and do ministry. And Jesus is saying, that's the problem. It shouldn't be like that. Our whole life should be about how can I serve the Lord? The only reason I am here is to bring glory, is to bring fame to my Savior, Jesus Christ. Even in the book of Ephesians, where Paul begins to speak about all of these gifts that we have for us, he has for us in the heavenly realm, those are all spiritual blessings. Those are all spiritual gifts. I tell you guys this all the time, and you probably get tired of hearing it, but I don't care. That's my job to tell you. Jesus Christ has called us to do two things. He's blessed us to give us salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And the 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 second thing is to suffer for him, whatever he calls us to do in that. That's what the text says. He has given us faith to believe and then to suffer for him, to bring glory to his name. Count the days of your suffering. Count the days of your suffering. You know what I mean. It's not that many. We serve a good God. We serve a gracious God. We serve a loving God. But our lives belong to him. It's not mine. It's not yours. My life belongs to Jesus Christ. And that's what it's going to come down to in the day of gifts. When he begins to say, hey, I had all of this for you, but you were too busy for me. I wanted to give you all of this, but you're in the kingdom. Cheer up. You're in the kingdom. I don't, I don't want that for me and my family. I don't want that for you. We're here for one thing, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, to do it with the best of our being. Because he's given everything he has for us. To, re- to reciprocate that, we should give everything to him by his grace. So he says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling. He's a hired hand and does not care about the sheep. Jesus says again, I am the good shepherd, ego me, Yahweh. This is his sixth time saying that, Yahweh, standing there, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. And I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. I can get my Bible and sit down and begin to read And sometimes it seems as if the words just come off the page because he's speaking. And I I just put it down. I say, Lord, why? I feel like David when he went into the tabernacle and says, Lord, why would you choose me? Of all the people of the earth, why would you choose me to be your son? And I'm sure you guys feel the same way. It's by his grace. It's by his own choosing. He says, and the Father knows me. Even so, I know the Father, and I lay down my life 
for the sheep. Jesus says this four times. He says, I give or I lay down my life. And he's speaking of his sacrificial death here. Because once again, a shepherd in that day would lie down at that enclosure. And if any predator comes his way, he has to defend his sheep. He says, I am laying down my life. And listen to this, for the sheep. And that word for is very important. The Greek word is huper. And the word huper means on behalf of or instead of or in the place of. Jesus is saying, I am going to lay my life down in death in the place of, on behalf of the sheep. Wow, that's amazing. So they don't have to die in their sins. I explained it this way one time. It's like a pinch hitter. It's like the pitcher going up to bat. And everybody knows a pitcher can't hit. Not many of them. And so he says, go sit in the dugout and my best hitter will come up and bat. That's what Jesus says. He tells all of his children, you can't handle this. You can't handle what I'm about to go through. You can't handle one little white lie. So go sit in the dugout and let me go to bat for you. I'm going to lay my life down for you. I'm going to experience death and separation from my father so that you will never have to. Being a shepherd is a risky life. But Jesus He laid his life down for it. And he puts it this way. The Apostle Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He says in verse 16, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. He already knows predestination, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Jesus will will say later in verse 18, I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. I receive this power, this authority from my father. Let's look at verse 16 again. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. He's speaking of those outside of the fold of Judaism right here. He's speaking of the Gentiles. The gospel, remember, is supposed to go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the earth. That's what Jesus told us to do. We're the other sheep, unless you are Jewish here. And Paul in Ephesians calls this the mysterion. He calls this the mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament. It was there in the Old Covenant, but they couldn't see it. And it was finally revealed in the New Testament that Jew and Gentile not only would be saved, That would be great. But Jesus says, no, I don't want there to be any kind of distinction. Because remember, we all came from Shem, Ham, and Japheth anyway. So to make sure, I want you to know there's no distinction. There's going to be only one fold. 
Jew and Gentile becoming one in the body of Christ. If we are born again, if we know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we are all one. It's the enemy. It's the world. It's the flesh that tries to divide us. That's the problem with America today. But we are all the same. Jesus made sure of that. So when he says, the other sheep I have, and there will be one flock and one shepherd, it's because we are in Christ Jesus, one covenant. Because remember, the Jews thought that they were going to heaven because of the covenant made to Abraham and the law that they had to maintain. So they said they were going to heaven because of the bloodline and because of the law of Moses. And then there's the Gentiles. They said, hey, you're doomed for hell. Remember those, back in the day, those presto logs? That's what they said the Gentiles were for, to to, to kindle the flames of hell because we were Gentiles. Jesus had to straighten out all that. Matter of fact, the devout Jew, in one of their prayers would be, oh, thank you, God, that I'm not a slave I'm not a Gentile, or I'm not a woman. Jesus is going to bring light into all of this. Even if you think about it, at the temple precinct, that outer court, remember what it was called? The court of the Gentiles. We had no access until Jesus comes. And Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, He's taken down, he's broken down the wall of division once again, and the two has become one the way it should be, thanks to Jesus Christ. That's why when it says, other sheep I have, and there will be one flock and one shepherd, he was thinking about us even at the time, even at that time. Not only us in general, but he was thinking about Joan DeVico. He was thinking about Sue Bowman. He was even thinking about PV. He knew I would be coming. We would be coming into this fold. That's amazing he would think about us like that. So he says in verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power, exousia, the, the, the regal right of the king coming from God the Father. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus has said early in the book of John, I am the resurrection and the life. He said in the prologue, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Therefore, verse 19, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, this is the only go-to line these religious leaders have. He has a demon. They continue to say that, and he is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Stop right there. And look at your Bible. You see that period at the end of verse 21? The period, not the question mark, all the way to the end. From there to the end of verse 22 was a two to three months period going on right there. 
So we have just come to the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. When we open up to verse 22, now it's not the fall any longer. It's wintertime. It's it's not September or, or October. It's December now. It's the Jewish month of Kislev, and it's in the wintertime, two to three months later. So he says in verse 22, now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's attending this celebration of the Feast of Hanukkah. And the reason I bring this up is because when I first became a believer, we used to go to this uh, Messianic Jewish fellowship, and they were kind of so-so down on Christmas. But, you know, I always threw my tree up anyway. (laughs) I know all the things about the tree and all those things, what people say, and yeah, I understand that. But it's okay to put up a tree. I always put up a tree. I'm celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. And the reason I preface that is because this feast, this feast of lights, this feast of dedication, it's not a biblical feast. It's not in the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying, it's okay. I want you to see that it's not Any Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, is nowhere in the Old Testament, and the Savior is celebrating this Feast of Lights. I'm going to give us a little history because I love history and and how it became this Feast of Light. Remember, all of us remember Alexander the Great. He wanted to conquer the world, and he almost did it, but he died in Babylon, and on his deathbed, He says, they asked him, who do you want us to give the kingdom to? And Alexander said, give it to the strong. And they were saying, the strong who? The strong what? What do you think? So they finally decided, okay, we'll divvy the kingdom up to his four generals. That's what he does here. Cassander, he was given the area of Greece and Macedonia. Lysimachus, he was given Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey and Thrace, Southeast Asia and Europe. Seleucus. He was given Syria and Babylon, and then Ptolemy, he was given North Africa, Egypt, and Arabia. He, he got the largest piece of land there. But these four men took over the entire Grecian empire, pretty much the known world. So as they're conquering and Hellenizing every place and everybody was bowing down to them without a fight, right between Syria And Africa was this little piece of land, and it was Israel. And Israel said, hey, we're not bowing down. Do what you want. Do as you please. We will fight you. And that's what they did. Matter of fact, what happened, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, the shining one, Epiphanes, but the Jews called him Epimanes, and that means he was a madman. They called him the beast. He had went to uh, Ptolemy. The Romans come and said, I tell you what, their general got off the horse, drew a land in the sign, a, 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 a line in the sand, and said, Antiochus, if you cross this line, we will go to war and we will destroy you. 
Antiochus knew he could not defeat them. He gets raging mad, gets back on, well, he stays on his horse, and he goes, as he's going home, he's so mad, he goes to Israel. And he begins to slaughter everyone in Israel. He kills over 80,000 Jews. He takes about 40,000 of them captives. He goes into the uh, the temple and destroys everything there. We know the story. He puts a statue of Zeus in there and tells them to bow down and worship that. He takes a pig and he slaughters it on the altar. And if you know anything about the Jews and pork, that's not cool. But he's doing all of these things. He stopped the little boys from being circumcised. All of these things are happening. And then he leaves. This goes on for a while. And then I think around one. 64 B.C., the Maccabean revolt happens. Judah, Maccabees, Mattathias, Maccabees, and his boys, they go to war. Uh, Guerrilla warfare is happening, and they finally defeat Antiochus uh, IV. He goes home, and so they want to rededicate the temple. And so they go into the temple. They have to clean it, straighten it out. But the menorah is there, and they want to light it. And they only have enough oil for one day, one cruise of oil for one day. And so they still want to light it because it takes eight days for for uh, all of the different purifications, all these things to happen. So when they do light it, it won't smoke. So they set it, and they light it, and it stays lit, not for one, not for two, not for three, but for eight days. That's what they celebrate, the Feast of Hanukkah, the, the, the lightings of the menorah. And the menorah we know is seven candles, but the Hanukkah is a nine-branch candlestick. You like that center, you have four on the other side. And that's what Jesus is celebrating here. Once again, it's not a biblical feast, but Jesus recognizes it. I said all of that to say this. The reason it's so important, I believe the Holy Spirit brings it here, is in verse 20, I think 23. Let me find it here. Because this is the angst about it. It says, Verse 24, then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Tell us plainly. Because at that time in the feast of the Hanukkah, they were praying for a Messiah. And they were praying for a Messiah like Mattathias, a Judah Maccabees, someone who would come and overthrow the Romans, start an insurrection for the Jews could reign. And there Jesus is saying, hey, I'm your Messiah. I'm your good shepherd. I am the door. Matter of fact, and you won't like hearing this, but once again, it's the truth. Matter of fact, it doesn't matter what happens down here on this plane? Jesus is getting them to understand. What matters is the spiritual plane. Are you born again? Do you know who Jesus Christ is? Do you know who the door is? 
I've come to give you life and come to give it to you to the fill, to the abundance life. That when things happen bad in this life, Jesus says, I'm going to give you everything you need. And I will even give you more than that if you follow me. The problem with us, we want more than we need. And when we don't get the things that we think we want or should have, we don't like it. We live in abundance in America. Anything I want to eat, I can just about say, hey, let's go get it. We live in abundance. And Jesus is saying, I've blessed you, but what I want from you is to follow me. It's to lay your life down for others and for me like I have did for you. And that's what's going on here. Jesus Christ is saying, hey, I am the good shepherd. We might say, Jesus, you don't understand. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know the sufferings and the burdens and the heartache that I have to live through every day. But we have to understand also, Scripture tells us, Jesus Christ He sympathizes with us. He's the high priest. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. Why? Because he was in all points tempted like us, yet without sin. Scripture tells us about Jesus. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silenced, so he opened not his mouth. That tells me he understands. That tells me not only is he the good shepherd, but the good shepherd became a sheep. The good shepherd became a sheep, and he understands anything that I will ever go through in this life. He understands because He was thirsty at one time. He was hungry at one time. He was betrayed at one time. He was hurt at one time. All of those things that's happened to us, it's nothing new to him. It's happened to him. That's what he's saying. He was tempted with everything we've been tempted with. And the remedy, and the worship team can come up, the remedy to all of this It's how I started this. Come unto me, all you who are labor labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's easy to say, you don't understand this relationship. You don't understand, Lord, what I've been going through. But once again, he does. And his grace is sufficient, you guys, for all of us. He's called us to lay our lives down. And that's hard to do. We kick and stream. That's just natural. But we shouldn't be walking in the natural. We should be walking by the Spirit. I was telling Lydia the other day, I'm gonna, one of these days, I'm going to preach, preach a message, and it's going to be a long one. No, it's going to be a short one. But I'm going to give you the inside view of Lydia and I every once in a while. I don't say everything right all the time, believe it or not. But 
if I say something a little sideways sometimes, every once in a while, I'll get the same thing back to me. And I was driving one day, and I said, you know what, Lydia? You guys, you smart people, help me out. Is it Newton's law that every action, you have to have, it's an opposite reaction. Yeah, yeah. And I said, I'm going to give a message on that because that's so true. Can y'all agree with me? Yeah, you don't have to agree. I understand. It's true. And so what I'm saying is it should not be because we should be walking how? In the Spirit, by the Spirit. What if Jesus would have did that? Many, all the times he was slapped and abused and spat upon and spoken, all those things, words, and he never gave the same thing back. We can live holy lives, and I know we do live holy lives, but my point is I can do better. You guys can do better because we need to stay close to the Lord we need to be in his word, proximity-wise. We need to be abiding in the true vine and let his life flow into us. So when someone says something that shouldn't be said, we can just smile and say, that's okay. I know you didn't mean it. I'm going to walk with the Lord. And that's what's pleasing to him because we're here to please him, not to please ourselves. It's all about the great king. It's not about Victor Sumrauer. It's all about the great king. Sooner or later, and I'll close with this, whatever we're going through, whatever the weight is on us, whatever the hoopamony bearing under pressure is on us, and we've been living like that for two years or three years, and that pressure is on us, sooner or later, the deliverer will come. David tells me so. David followed the Lord when Saul was trying to kill him and everything else, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. I'm going to wait on the Lord. And the Lord showed up, and the Lord blessed them. That's what he will do with every one of his children. If we just submit to whatever we're under and allow him to live through us. Let's pray, you guys. Father, you are so good. It's true that the enemy is a great marketer, but we know he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And Lord, we want to walk close to you, no matter how he packaged things with his glitter and glam and allurements. We know the way of that life leads to death. So Lord, I pray that we would be wise, not in our own knowing, but the wisdom that comes from above that we would walk as your sheep circumspectly following the true shepherd who loves us. And he will give us rest, and he will lay us down beside the still waters. He nourishes our souls. So, Lord, help us to have, once again, sensitive hearts, clear ears, not listening to the things of the world, but listening to your voice. Because we know your voice, we're your children. We're the sheep of your pasture. And you call each and every one of us by your name. But when you first make that call, may we run to you. And may we not have to run too far. 
because we're already close to you, Father. That's what I pray for every believer here. Lord, if there's someone here that does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, or there's someone listening online, Lord, would you open their eyes? Would you open up their hearts to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ, to repent of their sins and give their lives to Jesus? And then they can come into the sheepfold where there's peace, where there's comfort, where there's rest, where there's joy. And Father, continue to lavish us with your Holy Spirit that we may be pleasing to you. And I ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen. Let's everyone stand and close with a song, please.